It looks like the clock is about to strike midnight on this Cinderella story. It's uh, refreshing, yet uh, displeasing to the eye. Somebody has run out on the field. Some goofball in a hat and a red shirt. Now he takes off the shirt. It's a bold strategy, Cotton. Let's see if it pays off for him. In the dying seconds! Unbelievable! They wouldn't say die! That just shows that they didn't come to play. They really come to play here at the MCG tonight. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to They Came to Play. It's Danny McGinley here. Normally, you would hear Lemo intro the show or Tess Armstrong. I've been given the reins today. Lemo is doing Triple M breakfast all this week, so he's uh, probably asleep on the couch as we record this. Tess Armstrong is uh, currently doing a law degree as well as producing Drive on 774. So they're both busy. I am absolutely unemployed, so I've got all the time in the world to you about the movie that is not happening, but it's a very special episode this week. We're all currently suffering under the isolation and uh, the it's weighing a bit on mental health and stuff, so I thought I would chat to uh, someone who knows more about mental health than probably he would care to, but he does seem to be the go-to man that we speak to about these issues. He's also a Bulldogs Premiership hero, so here's a treat. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, please applaud into your headphones. It's Tommy Boyd. Thanks for having me, Danny. I appreciate the uh, overwhelmingly generous uh, introduction, and it's um, it's good to be here. Good to chat to you. Well, thank you very much. Well, yeah, uh, I, I mean, I could, uh, you know, start this with uh, some, some, I don't know, some sideswiping journalism stuff, but are you relieved, first of all, that it was Eastern Woods Premiership medal stolen, not JJ's Norm Smith because you would be you would be suspect number one there. <laughs> uh, I'm I'm just I actually messaged um, Tiffany this morning on Instagram and just sort of sent my best regards. I think there's multiple layers, obviously, to having your house broken into, but um, to lose something like a premiership medal is clearly not ideal. But then on top of that, the World War Two memorabilia that they had within the family as well it's it's quite a devastating feeling especially with a young child at home so uh my my condolences and i, I really do hope they can get to the bottom of it as quickly as possible yeah i mean what why would you steal something like that where, where are you gonna like world war ii medal yeah i guess there's collectors but premiership medallions where, where you can't sell that down the pub what are you doing yeah that's what i said i don't understand the thieves sort of uh thought process unless they were just big fans because they're both <laughs> Both both medals are so unique, and and both pieces of equipment are so unique that there's there's no way that it doesn't pop up on someone's radar. So it's a really um really sort of heartless thing to do, particularly in this period of time when you need to be feeling as comfortable as possible in your own home because we're obviously resigned to the fact that we're staying here for the for the most part of our lives. You've got a premiership medal. Uh, don't tell us where it is. I mean, it's, but is it is it like engraved with your name? Is it unique to you, or or does it do like if yours? If we compared yours to say Luke Hodges from twenty fifteen, would they look the same? I, I presume so. There's no. I don't think it's an engraving on it. No, because you get them on the day. Um, but you know, I could be wrong here. I actually haven't spent that much time studying it, and I can tell you, it's it's not with me. It's at home with my parents, but. Um, yeah, that's actually a good question. I, th- I imagine they would have changed slightly over the years, um, but you know, for the most part, I think the the symbol is is the most important thing, and the, and the memories tend to be of more value, I think, to me rather than just the material um, medal itself. Yeah, the, the options tend to be either you you frame it with your premiership Guernsey and you make a little memorabilia thing for your parents, or or you just keep it in a drawer. That's yeah, no in between. Yeah, I mean, it's the same with the watch that they give you. And, like, I mean, I think 
there's there's um, there's one piece of memorabilia that we bought, um, which is the signed by all the players jersey with um, sort of pictures all around it, and, and it's a really really nice piece. And, and I gave that to my dad, and he's got that hung down at our beach house in Anglesey, and that's really nice to walk into the garage and have a look at that and reminisce every now and again. But I think for the most part. Um, you know, putting all this paraphernalia of your biggest successes around your house seems a little bit narcissistic. Yeah, that's what that's why I do it. At, uh, I always give it to mum and dad so they can have a shrine to me, and I'll just pop in occasionally. Yeah, just to boost the self esteem and go. I'm just going over to visit mum and dad and have a look at all my memorabilia from my sporting days. <laughs> so, so what are you doing now? What what is your you when did you retire? Was it last year? Year before? Uh, last time year. has no meaning anymore. No, no, it certainly hasn't the last eight weeks. So I, I retired on, I think it was the 19th of May last year. So we're ticking close to 12 months, very close. Um, and I must say, I, I do not um, have any regrets. And I certainly feel for the players who are still obviously involved in this maelstrom of events that's going on at the moment. I mean, it would have been an enormous challenge for me to get through this period, isolating, training with one other person, trying to stay fit, uncertain about when we're going to start. You know, there's all these talk about hubs and isolating as, with, as a team. It's just, um, there's just no winners in this whole COVID-19 um, situation we're experiencing. Yeah, do, you're still chatting to a few of the players. What is the routine that they've, they've like, it, clearly you can't just, you've got to keep up your, do your sprints, keep your, your body folds, skin folds down. Do you know what yeah. they're doing? Um, well, look, like, like everyone else, they're doing what they're supposed to do um, for, the, for the vast majority. You know, we're staying, they're staying inside and um, only going out for essential training sessions. And, but the real challenge is, and I think everyone could sort of, if they think about it carefully, can understand the fact that creating a, a, an environment which conditions your body for a game of two people is not impossible, right? Like you can't create a dynamic sprinting, changing direction, tackle, bump, all of those, you know, innate things that are so so important to our to our great game. You can't recreate that with only two people. So, um, I must say, it, it's, it seems like it'd be a very difficult time to be maintaining a, a level of fitness when the likelihood is you'll only have three weeks to be game fit once you um you get the green light. And do you know there are they have they been given like buddies from the club that you train with, or are you supposed to try and do these, you know, the tackle bags with your your, your partner or housemate? <laughs> I personally have been for a kick with my fiance a couple of times. It's quite, it's quite an enjoyable experience fielding ground balls. But um, I think um, for the most part, the boys would just be uh, running with partners that are you know close proximity to where they live, so they don't have to travel too far. Oh yeah, that makes sense in there. Uh, and oh yeah, are you are you still playing? Are you going to go back to to someone to yeah, some club? Yeah, I signed on with. Um, with St. Kevin's actually, so in the Amos, which I'm really optimistic will come out of this um, reasonably well compared to some of the suburban leagues, which I have some real worries for. Where their funds come from, how they, they don't pay players and the, and the way that the structure of their business is. It's far more, I think, resilient than um, some of the, the Eastern Footy League or where obviously I played my juniors. But, yeah, so I, I signed on with St. Kevin's, um, Scobbs, uh, and uh, I missed the first practice game because it was my dad's 60th birthday lunch. And Fair enough. two days later, the whole season was caught off. So I never even got to pull on the Guernsey. And look, I'll, I'll be there for the, for the um, hopefully forever. I mean, I'd love to stay at the club. I've really enjoyed my experience down there so far. And, um, you know, who, what happens this year? I, I really is not at the top of my priority list. Clearly, we've got bigger fish to fry in society. But, um, 
yeah, I'm really looking forward to finally getting out there at some point in the next 12 months, I suppose. Why did you choose St. Kevin's? Was it a big deal for it to be amateur? So like no one, you know, you don't owe anyone anything or or, or, is it, or do you've got mates who play there? Um, yeah, there's a couple of reasons. The first bit is the disassociation between football and money was really important for me, which might sound ridiculous for a guy who's on a massive contract, but there's a clear level of responsibility that's placed on you and a relationship between either performance or playing at all, whether you're at the EFL level, which I played for, um, played at last year uh, or at the AFL level or anywhere in between. So to take the actual fiscal money point of view out of it was really important so I could just turn up to play. If I couldn't play because of work, I wasn't going to cost me money and, and just just taking money out of the equation. The second thing was um, with where I am at in my life, living in the city, trying to work out what's next for my career, I need to surround myself with people who are similar-minded and similarly, you know, they always talk about the amateur network and, um, at the time of my uh, choosing of a club, I was really unsure about what was next. I knew I wanted to go into this mental health space and to speaking publicly, and I was starting to get some leads in that area. But I knew that being around people from business sense would help me better understand the world that I was moving into. So that's been really useful. And um, since then, obviously, uh, first and foremost, my speaking career, I suppose you call it, took off, and then. We hit COVID-19 and now we're back sitting at home waiting for some virtual sessions coming up in the next couple of weeks. So that's what you do. You're a, you're a, a professional speaker now telling your, your journey and, and how, to, how to survive mental health at the best of times. Yeah, I'm not sure what the title should be. I mean, professional speaker, it sounds a little odd, right? But I think... I think the way that I try and look at it is that I feel as though, and I've been told by a number of people who I trust and who I, who care about me and who are professionals in this area and in the mental health space, that there's an intrinsic value in me getting up there and sharing my story. And that for the people who are listening, it validates some of their own feelings and concerns and it allows them to better address some of the issues they may be facing in their life, amongst other things. And, and quite um, simply put, my story is interesting because of the way that my career panned out um, from being a number one draft pick to a premiership player to getting traded, the big contract, and then walking away. It, people are just intrigued. So um, I think as long as I've got um, that level of value I can provide to people um, and make sure that I can you know, stick true to what I believe and be really authentic in my messaging and, and really try and help people, I'll continue to do it as long as I can. Well, yeah. I mean, let's go through your 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 journey. I mean, you, you one thing actually I've wanted to know. It's not about uh, mental health. When you get drafted by GWS, and I've wondered this with all the players who got taken by Gold Coast and GWS. How, you know, you you who did you go for growing up? First of all, Carlton. Carlton, fine. So you would have grown up watching. Uh, oh, actually, you were born in '95, so you didn't see any grand finals or, I, or anything. I, I, it was a month before the last one, the last Premiership. Oh. Oh, that's right. You, uh, fun fact about... I was alive, yeah. You were born the day of Ted Whitten's funeral. That's right. That's right. Yeah, actually, someone did tell yeah. me that a couple of years ago. Destiny. 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 So, you, but how long... To, so, you would have grown up loving, you know, Kernahan and Judd and all that. How long did it take you to learn the GWS song? When did that sort of come in? Because you, you, you just focused on your game, you don't, and you know, you, no one knew the GWS song for a few years. Did you, did you have to sit down and memorize the lyrics before your first game? Uh, I'm trying. To, I only won one game, I think, at the Giants. To be honest, oh. with you. <laughs> so it wasn't uh, an issue. <laughs> actually, maybe no, no, that's not true. I think I might have won a couple, but this, 
I definitely remember. So it's actually a really catchy song, I must say. Actually, it's a great song. I, th- I think they the did a really song. The Cat Empire wrote it, I believe, and I've never yep. ever been a, um, a complainer around their uh, their theme song. So uh, I think I it actually it sort of sticks in your head pretty well. But um, I reckon I only uh, only sung it twice, maybe, uh, and I can't even remember who. I think we beat Carlton in Sydney. That was oh, my first win. The irony. <laughs> yeah, and and I think I kicked a goal with uh, I don't know one of the last goals of the game to put us in front or so, something like that. And then we beat uh, the Bulldogs in the last round of the year by a goal. Oh yeah, I um, remember that. And I reckon they, I think those are the only two two times that they sung it. So yeah, anyway, it was a um, a really interesting experience. So I've described it sometimes as it was like being on a school camp for a year. I, most of my memories of that time are really sort of foggy because you know similar to. To the time we're living in at the moment, everything sort of flowed into the next day, and because you don't have family and friends around you, you sort of feel like you're just always half there. And I think that was part of my issue in, in wanting to return home. Certainly, yeah. How long did it take you to realize that uh, it wasn't just uh, you know teething problems, and you needed to get out of GWS? Well, I think it, I mean it's not it's not a you know purely you know, consequential uh, list of events. I think first and foremost, I realised I was quite uncomfortable up there because of the way that they're, you know, it was just a new club and they, they were having teething issues as much as I was. And I and I was, there's plenty of things that I could have done better. I could have been um, more outgoing. I could have been more integrated with my teammates much quicker. Um, but I, I chose not to and I thought that was the right thing to do because I needed some space. And, and over time, it, it clearly didn't help. But I didn't necessarily think, oh, I want to leave until there was something to leave for. And quite quite clearly that was, I think it was in July or something when I first had conversations with the Bulldogs around coming back to Melbourne. And all of a sudden a choice was presented to me, which was really important because I wasn't just sitting there going, oh, I just want to go home. Um, I was trying to make the most of my career and, and trying to really get the best out of myself whilst I was up there. And, and when I left at the end of 2014 um, for their off-season, I was under no illusions that I was going to be going anywhere but the Giants that year. And it wasn't until much later when um, Ryan Griffin asked for a trade that things actually started to manifest into a reality of me returning to Victoria. So you got contacted in July. So that would have been back when it was still uh, Brendan McCartney and uh, I believe Simon Garlick as the CEO. So, I mean, it, the media sort of shows it as sort of this uh, uh, fly-by-night uh, heist almost of, uh, you know, we lost our our coach and our captain, but we just went in and uh, suddenly picked up the great Tom Boyd. Uh, But this was more of a slow burn deal, was it? Yeah. So look, I I wasn't privy to these discussions, obviously in my draft year, but from what I understand, there was, there were some discussions with the the Giants around the Bulldogs trading for the number one pick or whether they could do a deal because they wanted um, to get me at the, at the time. And the Giants were very steadfast and, um, uh, stubborn that they weren't going to let that happen which was fine and the Bulldogs obviously ended up getting um, one of the greatest players who will ever play for the club in Marcus Bontempelli so it turned out pretty well for them I would say but then the follow-up year was that they were again very eager to get me and they were still convinced that I was the guy they wanted to to get Um, so then the discussions obviously must have started rather early Uh, like all things in football form is 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 um, always a a catalyst for change and and I think the Bulldogs had obviously been struggling a little bit that year um, and then 
again, like you said, the media ended up portraying it as a, a really quick moving deal, but it was it was really built probably twelve months in advance, I would say. And was it while you were at GWS that you realised your mental health wasn't great, or did was there a light bulb moment where you realised, hang on, this is I'm no good here? Uh, no, I, I didn't really understand my mental health until probably a couple of years later. And I, I mean, it's a, for all of us, it's an ever uh, ever evolving relationship that we have with our own mental health. And I think first and foremost, I started having issues with sleep and anxiety. But at the time, I just thought it was match day nerves, or you know, I was nervous for training, or I just you know, I was homesick, or what, whatever umbrella term you want to use to describe it. I, I was really sort of blasé about the whole matter. And then it wasn't until um, 2016, where I started to have actual issues during the year, but the sort of counteraction was that we were going so well on the field, so it was a really enjoyable place to be. So turning up to this high-pressure workplace, at least at that point, wasn't compounding my issues. And then once we hit the – it was almost two weeks after the grand final, um, I'd had sh- uh, shoulder surgery and I'd also had ankle surgery, and I spent six weeks basically limping around in a sling and – and then returned to the club to sort of reload for 2017. And and without that proper break and me not having dealt with my issues previously, that's when it starts to get really, really bad. And obviously 2017 will show that, you know, I took six or eight weeks off footy and um, ultimately, you know, learned the most about myself I ever have through those sort of adverse times and, and, and wound up obviously realising that football wasn't the career for me. So um, it was, a yeah, an evolving discussion with Lisa, my psychologist, but also an evolving discussion in my uh, in my own head, I suppose, around who I was and what I really wanted to do with my life. When did you uh, go to see a psychologist? Was that uh, was there was there one? In, there's one in the club, isn't there? Yeah. So Lisa Stevens is um, is a tremendous resource that we have, and um, she works at the VRC as well, Racing uh, Victoria. And um, look, she's a absolute um an astoundingly compassionate and caring uh lady who is there to aid performance first and foremost as a psychologist but she's also there to care for everyone and to care for all the players and one of the really lucky things that happened to me and i and I, do, I do truly mean that i was extraordinarily lucky was that we had someone like lisa around to uh guide me through this process and who i already had a relationship with in some way shape or form one of the things that's very difficult for people when they're reaching out for help in the beginning of their sort of real struggles with mental health is, okay, who do I talk to? How do I find them? How do I find the right one? Isn't a psychologist somebody who's going to sit me down or lie me down on a couch and ask about, oh, what happened when you were four? Like the, these these common <laughs> yeah. stigmas that are constantly reinforced in the media uh, and particularly in sort of in the movie sort of scene. It's really hard for people to, to mentally get their head around um, that whole uh, process whilst they're feeling extraordinarily vulnerable. Um, so in that in that sense, I was extraordinarily lucky because I didn't have to go and find the right match for me. It, it was already there in front of me. And, and I do, again, um, understand how lucky I was to have that because many, many people don't. Yeah, I mean, one of the questions I have here is... Uh, what is where does someone start if they are feeling low? I mean, a lot of us are struggling with mental health, especially in isolation. I'll, I'll tell you, just the other day, I did a, a video 
<clears throat> conversation with uh, like my four best mates and uh, we just had nothing to say to each other because no one's left the house except for work and because uh, Netflix and Stan, there's so many different shows. None of us had seen the same TV show, so we couldn't talk about that. We normally talk about footy, but there's none of that. So it was just, I mean, we chatted for an hour, but there was nothing really to say. It was just mostly dumb jokes and stuff. And when that when that wrapped up, I, I felt really low just because I'd been looking forward to it all week and it was sort of nothing. So we're all struggling. But if someone does reckon they need help, uh, where, where do you start? Well, there's a few different resources. I mean, um, I'm not obviously an expert on this part of it, but I mean, I, I would always go to the the big um, the big sites. I mean, Beyond Blue and Lifeline, um, all of those sort of uh, more public ones yeah, are really important. Lifeline, Lifeline always sounds like I always associate it with like you're, when you're about to end it all. You know, yeah. that's when you call Lifeline. But sure, you can get in there earlier. Yeah, that's okay. Exactly. They won't yeah. get angry at you. And a headspace to a lot of stuff in this area. Um, look, there's a number of different resources. I'm not affiliated with anyone in particular, but I know there's a number of government resources that are out there that are really quite easy to find and they're really useful. Um, there's particularly ones that are just phone calls that you can call up and there'll be someone there to aid you um, through what you're going through. Um, and I know from you know family experience, it's, it can be a really difficult system to navigate. And I, I do have an enormous amount of empathy for people trying to go through it and, and trying to navigate that system. And, and to your point, uh, Danny, which I find extraordinarily um, resonate, resonates extraordinarily strongly with me, it, these scripted phone calls and Zoom calls have an enormous amount of good intentions. But the reality is, that if you are forcing it, you're going to feel hollow afterwards. And, and what I've tried to do is if I have something to talk about or if something happens and I call someone and I can have the same conversation with a number of different people, but it's not it's not manufactured and, and then I feel like I achieved something through the call um, because it's such an extraordinarily difficult um, time to go through. Look, I, just before we started, I wrote down just a couple of things that I know that people are going through that, that you know, whether it be loneliness or um, trying to find satisfaction based on the fact that you don't have work, which has been a real big challenge for me. Yep. As I base a yep, lot of my yeah, it will base a lot of my self value around helping people in the mental health space. Well, I can't actually fiscally, physically be there at the moment to do that. And now I'm trying to set up some virtual stuff, which is starting to get some traction. And I'm really hopeful that it can be effective. But that true human to human interaction that I sort of crave, I don't have at the moment. Then there's the disconnection from people where people are clearly withdrawing because they feel like they just don't have a reason to connect with their friends and family. They're feeling very, very vulnerable and withdrawn. There's a financial issue is clearly a massive concern. Um, oh, yeah. So many people. And again, I'm, I'm not in that position. So I find myself being extremely um, grateful that, that I can still look after myself and my family. But I, again, do have an enormous amount of empathy for the people who are struggling in that area. And finally, I think, which is sort of encompasses a lot of the things that I just mentioned is, is this relationship thing that everyone's going through. I mean, we're, we're all stuck in houses with the people we love, but w we can't be apart. And it is an enormous challenge for us to be tolerant, to be, you know, empathetic and, and, and gracious for the fact that we do have the loved ones around us to, so, so as to say that we're not alone, but um, it doesn't mean that it's not a challenge. And all of these things are very real. All of these things are very, very important to validate. And everyone needs to be cognizant of the fact that everyone around us is going through something slightly different and we need to be trying to be 
as um, vulnerable within ourselves to others and to just share the fact that, yes, we, this is a very, very difficult time for everyone on a, on, a, on a multitude of different levels. Is there any techniques that you've been taught along the journey that we could all adapt to ourselves, like, I don't know, little mental training drills? Oh, I think there is, but so many of them are, are unfortunately, you know, restricted at this stage. I mean, I've always... All right. I've always said, you know, one of the biggest things I, I do when, you know, I'm not feeling myself is I, I just go and do something, right? Well, obviously, unfortunately, what we're res- resigned to is health, exercise, and the supermarket currently. Now, it's pretty hard, to, but but within that, we have to find a way to utilize that same approach. So whether that be getting out consistently, doing exercise, getting up at the same time, uh, or, you know, um, making sure that you get ready for the day, even if you're not necessarily going to leave the house or everything. I need to get up, have a shower, have a coffee, and just start your mental process. Now, not to say that this is easy. I've struggled with this in the last eight weeks. I mean, there was a two, week, two or three-week period there where I had absolutely nothing on. I just I physically couldn't create an environment where there was work to do per se, rather than, other than, sorry, me just investigating things, um, trying to stay off social media and the absolute abhorrent amount of news and misinformation that we're receiving with regards to this virus. <laughs> yeah. So so uh, what I, do you look up? What does Tom Boyd look up when he's when he's trying to... Because, uh, what, what, I mean, what I do is I will uh, watch uh, you kick the winning goal in a grand final and that, that makes me happy, but it also sometimes makes me sad because I miss going to the footy with, with mates and, and seeing, seeing us win. What, what do you do? Uh, well, that's a good question. I, I do a number of different things. I've, um, so I've got uni starting again next week. Uh, so I've been trying to organise cool. that, which is going to be a something stimulating, which will be really good. Um, but look, I think there's, without saying what I do specifically, I would say what I avoid doing, right? So I, I've, okay. really, I've really tried to avoid sitting there and listening to hours and hours of information on COVID-19. I don't think yep. that it's particularly helpful. I think if you pick a segment that you think is an authoritative source that is going to give you true information that is important to you, and that's probably going to be some of the government addresses, but there's no there's no utility in overwhelming yourself with the amount of information. Um, the other thing I try not to do is look too far ahead. I, at, the, at the beginning, it was clear that everyone was trying to speculate when this is going to be over, and the, one of the great terms that I was given... Um, from Lisa actually is is borrowing problems from the future. Now, what that does is when you when you keep looking forward and looking forward and, and trying to get a grasp on something that you can't right now, it just creates this feeling of anxiety and and, and it's very natural and normal because you're overwhelmed with your inability to control an outcome that is that is yet to sort of um, to manifest itself in front of you. So, be task oriented. Do one thing at a time. Just tick one day off at a time at the moment. I mean, we're just in such a unique, unique position that quite clearly we're just going to have to look after each other and look after ourselves in the sense that it's just going to—it's just a waiting game that we're playing. We're just trying to have to achieve as much as possible whilst we're waiting. Man, that is so good. Don't borrow problems from the future. I'm going to. Man, that is that. Oh. Oh, that's good. I feel yeah. like you know that uh, that scene in Analyze This with uh, Robert De Niro and Billy Crystal, one of those you know classic uh, psychiatrist movies. But uh, and, and Robert De Niro has a breakthrough like that, and he just keeps pointing at Billy Crystal. Go, oh, you, you're good, you're good. That's yeah. so good. 
Yeah, I, well, I feel like I, I could actually almost sort of reinvent myself and Lisa sitting there. When she said that to me for the first time, I was like, oh, have you got that copyrighted or have you pinched up from someone, <laughs> someone else? You might not want to give it out so freely. But, um, yeah, it's a really, really important point, Danny, in all seriousness. It, it, there is no, there's no utility in bogging yourself down with problems of the future right now. We simply have to focus on what's in, right in front of us and, um, as difficult as it can be, and again, it's quite easy in my situation. Even though I've a lot of my work and footy and and all, look, there's certainly things that I'm having issues with. But I, I'm safe, my family is safe, um, and and I've an enormous amount of gratitude for that. And I think that 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 sense of great um, graciousness and and, um, and feeling that we do have good things still in our lives is so so important to reinforce that optimism and and positivity through this this difficult period. So going back to your to your footy journey, was there a moment when you realised you wanted to retire? Was it a light bulb moment, or was it a slow growth? No, it was a it was a it was a long process. I've said this before publicly, so it's not exactly um, you know outstanding news. But I, I first thought about retiring when I was at the Giants. I, I just went, I just had this sense that there was a there was a, a disconnect between who I was and what I was doing. And you know, I don't know if this happens for a lot of people in work or. Uh, again, I'm no expert, but what it felt like was I've grown up being a kid who, you know, it's it's nice manners, be friendly to people, kind to people, um, be a super, you know, positive influence on the people around you, et cetera, et cetera. And it done really, really well. And I had a really sort of um, blessed childhood, to be totally honest. I you know, did well at school, well at football. And I finally got to this stage where I was in an environment where, you could be the best teammate and the best friend, and the best trainer. I'm not saying I was all these things, but I was I was aiming to be them. And if you didn't play well for two hours on the weekend, the value of you as a human being was so far diminished below what it actually was that it just didn't feel like it was worth playing. And once I sort of come to grips with the fact that this is how the system works and, and in competitive environments, we're clearly a, you know, a, a performance-based industry. It, it, it's it's a necessary evil. I understand that, and it's not it's not a complaint. But it didn't fit in with my values and the fact that I, I felt like I was contributing regardless. And ultimately, at the end of the day, that's where I think I lost the passion for the game and and the passion for for being around an industry that didn't sort of reward the multitude of things that people can can accomplish and and, um, and perform in while still playing the game of AFL footy. So. It was a slow burn, but obviously in, around May last year, it became very apparent. Uh, I think throughout the preseason, um, having not trained at all with a back injury and then finally starting to get back and getting r- sort of rushed back into play and I wasn't fit enough. And uh, at the end of the day, I was just like, I, I don't think it's worth, my heart's not in it anymore and I'm not going to sit here and take a paycheck just for the sake of it. Do you, who do you, who do you have to tell for that? Is it, is it, do you, do you go to Bevo first or do you have to go to ring up the club president or? Yeah, so I, I had conversations with Lisa. Look, I'd had conversations in this regard for a long, long time. Like I just, there was just something there. There was something in in the way that the, the constructed um, community of the AFL that just didn't sit well with me. And it's not actually a criticism of them, but I think just a just a, a lack of um, connection between me and, and the, the job I was doing. So... I had a conversation with Lisa for long periods of time, and I remember I, would, I actually I was sitting in the car park at Big Uni, and I was going in for my night school 
class. And at this stage, myself and Zane Cordy had been doing um, full-time uni essentially whilst playing footy. And I was sitting in the car park and I was sort of pondering the fact that I think I actually wanted to be at uni more than I wanted to be at footy. And it was a really strange occurrence right in that moment. And then I knew based on conversations I'd had with um, with the football operations staff and, and sort of where I needed to get to, I knew my heart wasn't in it and I knew that um, it was time to, to move on and, and make that call. And, and so we called Pete, uh, we called Peter and um, caught up with him the next day and um, it, it was all, it all, all went really well. I mean, it was, they were very understanding. They were obviously you know, really disappointed that it hadn't worked out um, better, but you know, they were also very understanding and caring, and I still have a great relationship with everyone on the Bulldogs now, which is which is the the best part. What What are you studying? That's so fun. Oh, I don't see. This is a thing, Dan. I don't. I don't know if it was that fun, but it's probably showed a pretty big disparity between how much enjoyment I was getting out of my footy. I'm uh, I'm doing a business course um, with Zane, and uh, no, that doesn't sound fun. No, <laughs> no, it, it's it's. Um, some of it's really enjoyable, but clearly all of uni at times can be tedious. But um, I'm just studying with Jack McRae and, and Zane Cordy, and it, it's um, it's been been quite an enjoyable experience for the most part, I must say. And um, with all this COVID nineteen stuff, one one thing that I can do is really dive back into my study. So I actually might get it done this year, which would be which should be a nice achievement to tick off and do a virtual graduation ceremony or something. I've seen a couple of people <laughs> doing them. So. You get a mortarboard in the gown, you throw it up in the air. Yeah, I, saw, I think Fletcher Roberts did it actually quite recently. He's um, He's been quite big on the TikTok game lately. So uh, everyone have a look out for that. It's quite enjoyable. All right. Well, also just on, okay, so you retire, it's announced, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's your careers, I guess, all over that chapter's done. I've always wondered, this is something that I ultimately, you know, I regret, you know, not being a, a, a elite athlete and you know winning a grand final all of that but i imagine that first night when you've retired and you order you know you've had to eat you know salads and and you know a really restrictive diet for your whole life and suddenly you can have fish and chips chicken parma mcdonald's whatever you want what did you have that first night and was it the best meal you've ever had uh, no, no, it wasn't at all. I, so when I first retired, as you mentioned, it was it was everywhere. It was so exhausting those few days. I, I can't express how exhausting going into the club and look. I, I was, you know, some, some retirement speeches are quite long winded and and rightly so. I mean, some some people have played three hundred games and you know, been sort of part of the family at the Bulldogs for long periods of time. And I, I've watched the sort of likes of Dale Morris and Bobby Murphy and Matty Boyd and all these heroes of the club retire. But mine was a 61-game career, which ultimately had a premiership in it. It was a really interesting career, but it wasn't like I'd been, you know, part of the framework of the Bulldogs for, you know, decades. So I was really happy and, you know, I was I was really confident I made the right decision and I just wanted to go out and make sure everyone felt like that they knew that uh, they were the reason I'd stayed as long as I had rather than they were the reason I was leaving and, um, oh, that's good. To be able to move move on with that sentiment was really nice, and I think once the dust settled a bit, it was just a, a relief to be able to be me a bit more, and uh, particularly in public. I mean, I, I've always I've always shied away from the public spotlight as much as possible, which seems sort of counterintuitive considering how much press I've got. But if you actually look through the archives, me actually presenting myself in a public sense, has been quite limited. And, and I did that for a reason. I, I never felt comfortable 
and uh, uh, sort of answering questions. And I mean, I've always been decent at it, but it's just not something that I felt really necessary. And the club sheltered me to a degree. But that that moment when I finally just realised I was I was a normal person again, and the things that I'd once really held dear to me mattered again. Um, as well as the work that I've been doing, taking off was it was an enormously satisfying moment, and I'd never been so fulfilled than when I started to do that speaking and to see a real change in people's lives and uh, and the sort of the meaning that it held for them when I was speaking for them. So it was a it was an amazingly emotional sort of six week period, but um, one one I look back on very fondly. Yeah, I, I remember you. You, I mean, you you told me a story. I don't know if you remember it. Uh, just about. Something that us muggles uh, don't really appreciate is um, just how horrible some fans are when they think they're complimenting you. Yeah. Do you remember the story you told me the night of the of the premiership win and going to the Bulldogs function? Oh, yes, and, yes. Uh, yeah, and, a, and, a, and a club donor, someone who's you know, help, you know, I believe a player sponsor. Is that right? Just uh, uh, said an yeah. offhand comment. Yeah. Look. Do you, do you want to share the story? Or is I'm it- happy to share the story. It doesn't really bother me. I think, first and foremost, um, the club sponsors are what keeps the club going. So they do have Absolutely. an extraordinary amount of value. Do not get me wrong. But it doesn't give you a stick to use to hang over players' heads because you will suddenly throw a check at the club. And, I, and I've had issues with very few. And most of them I, I've an absolute enormous amount of regard for. But this evening, was it was the 2016 BNF. Uh, I was we'd been drinking. Throat. Yes, we'd been drinking for three days. I was very tired, <laughs> and, <laughs> and there was something like sixteen hundred people crammed into into the Palladium. And at this stage, they hadn't worked out, and I don't know why. Because all, I think all the other clubs had that. There's no use in letting the fans mingle with the players whilst the event is going on. It's just overwhelming for the players. They don't get to see anything. They get interrupted from their family and friends. They're often inadvertently very rude to your partner who's sitting right there. Oh, yeah, take a photo of us. Take a photo of us. And, and the girls yeah, yeah. are not enjoying it, right? Anyway, so this had come after probably another 50 people had already spoken to me. Clearly, I was sort of one of the hot ticket items straight after the grand final. And this man who I won't name came up to me and said, he said, oh, geez, I never rated you. Never thought you were any good, but I'm glad you played well on the weekend or something like that. And I, I was just like, God. mate, first and foremost, I'm, not, I'm so tired. Please leave me alone. But secondly, and I very rarely snap back at fans, but I basically said, look, I'm not sure how easy it looks in the stands, but I've been slugging away for three years to get to this point, and I really don't care if you've ever rated me or not. That's essentially what I said. <laughs> That's, but, that, is a, that is a lot nicer than I would have been. Yeah, well, it, it may have been a little bit more direct than that, Dan. We're, <laughs> we're a family-friendly podcast here. We are. We are. Uh, but anyway, I, I very rarely snap back at people. But in this, in that exact moment, it was just like people in general, and I think this is an issue across society, people in general think that they have the right to enforce opinions on athletes and you know people of you know influence or notoriety or whatever, as though they're not human. And I think if we can take anything out of the last six weeks with the issues that have happened in the AFL, the NRL, across the world and sports and, you know, whatever, 
they're, they're just we're just people. They're the people who who perform at an extraordinarily high level, athletically or entertainment wise, they're all suffering the same thing in a different way or uh, you know different fa- facet of their lives as everyone else is going through this COVID one nine thing at the moment. So this doesn't just stand for this period. If you can humanise the people that you're abusing on the weekend on the footy field, whether that be at the local level or the top level, I think it's going to be much better for you. And I understand the frustration at times, but it really does affect people's mental health. It really affects their ability to find satisfaction with their footy. It certainly was an issue for me, um, although I didn't admit it till obviously after I retired. But um, we're people that have you know, you know, feelings and emotions just as much as anyone. And we are in a, in somewhat of a pressure cooker. And, and I think if we can all show a bit more empathy towards each other, it'd be, it'd be of enormous value. Yep. I testify. I couldn't uh, agree more. Uh, what, what would your thoughts would be on something when I was doing a game day every week and uh, having to rush these uh, sketches uh, through uh, pretty much by myself, I'd, I'd it'd go to air Sunday, and by Sunday night, I was trying to write the next one, and I uh, co- copped a lot of flack on uh, some some trolls and social media and stuff. But uh, uh, one thing that I, I would like to point out to any any listeners, if and I think this will go for athletes as well as comedians and stuff, if someone's done something that you like. Please point that out because you get about ten times more criticisms than you get uh, the occasional. So if someone's made you laugh, I, I, I now try and do it as much as I can. If if I've seen a funny movie, I'll I'll even tweet the actors that are in it and just go, "Man, that was fantastic! Thank you so much for for your work." Would you would you as athletes would you are you happy to get you know, hey, really good goal on the weekend, or 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 would you rather just uh, just just yell it on the field and leave us alone? Oh, look, I, I don't think there's any perfect answer. I think everyone handles it differently. I think positivity online would be nice, though I'm not yep. I'm not totally convinced with the anonymity that people have online that there will be overwhelming positivity um, to match the negativity at, at any stage. But, look, I, I, I've, I use this as a piece of advice, particularly for school kids when I go to speak to them. They're, these platforms that we're using now that are such a big, you know, intrinsic part of our lives, so the Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, et cetera, et cetera, they're not – you can't use them as a friends list, right? I have 26,000 people follow me on Instagram. You think I know 26,000 people? And if I tri- – <laughs> and, and the thousands of other – tens of thousands of other people who have interacted with my profile over the years, I don't know any of them. And if I use it as though it's a friends platform, the proportional emotional strain in the positive or negative aspect based on what they say, it will reflect how I – view the platform if that makes any sense at all so if i think that it's yeah. it's a friends list and then i look on it and it's you suck and you're a terrible footballer i'm probably going to feel like my friends don't like me which is a really important thing so if you're going to use these platforms you need to understand the function of them now i, I use twitter exclusively as a news feed i rarely interact with people and if i do it's generally just trying to make a positive impact it doesn't always work um, i use instagram pretty much as uh, interesting photo book and you know a way to promote my business and LinkedIn is one that I've found to be extraordinarily useful lately but I don't think you can put credence on the comments and I think definitely Danny your point is 100% valid which is that if you feel something is good please say it's good but for those artists and entertainers and actors and footballers out there I don't think that um, you can responsibly put credence on positive comments without empowering the negative ones that you're invariably going to get. 
So if you don't feel comfortable reading the comments when they're negative, don't bother because you're not going to get as many um, positive ones as you are negative, regardless (laughs) of who you are. So just, um, just give the comments section a miss if, uh, if you're having issues with it and, and that's probably the best advice going forward, I would say for most people. That is pretty good. All right, Tom. Well, we're going to wrap up uh, pretty soon. Thank you so much for uh, helping you know us all learn how to, to tackle this bad period. It, it wouldn't, though, be a uh, Tom Boyd interview unless uh, I asked uh, about the grand final. What, what was your favourite of your three goals? Oh, D- Danny. Everyone. I, I know. I, just, <laughs> I, I was hoping you were going to say the last one. Of course, of course. I tell you what... Um, I yeah I don't know how to describe this without sounding narcissistic. Clearly, the last goal was the most important, and it had a high degree of difficulty. It was a long. I've always been a long kick, but it was it was a long kick that one in particular. But I must say, kicking that first goal on my left foot certainly started my game off in a good light. I mean, there's that was the one you were right in the pocket. Yeah, I uh, I couldn't say I would would kick one out of twenty. Right, it just it was an extraordinarily difficult angle. Wrong side, wrong foot, et cetera, et cetera. But um, there's always – I've spoken to Nick Lawson a couple of times about this where invariably at the start of the grand final, they always pick out players that, you know, there's something happens where they're like, oh, he's nervous or he's, you know, he's overwhelmed by yep, the moment. Yep. And they always pull up with me, this kick the bond kick to me where I dropped the chest mark to start the game. And what you can't see from the TV is that Bont kicked that ball so hard about a foot and a half off the ground – that you know, I'd probably give. I probably should mark fifty percent of them, but <laughs> missing that one, <laughs> missing, missing that one wasn't actually as big a deal as everyone thought. And I, I think, I think um, everyone's like, "Oh, he bounced back from that really well. He could have gone one way or the other." But in my mind, walking into the game that day, I don't think there was anyone in the room who really thought anything other than we were going to beat them. I mean, we'd had the wood over the swans in a, for a while at that, at that stage, and. Um, there was just this, yeah, this, this tangible confidence within the group because we were so tight knit and so so invested in each other that the things were going to turn out well, and and clearly they did. And and I'm glad that I was a part of such a historic day in Bulldogs folklore. And um, it's something that I'm, oh, yeah. you know, will always be proud of, and and still happy to get the 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 old the old grand grandmas coming up to me and and saying thank you is still one of the nicest things that I get to experience. So. Uh, when you kicked that first goal, I was sitting with uh, Will Anderson, and uh, and you know, yeah, it was such a as you said, what you kick one out of twenty out of those, and you got it. And we we were both very nervous that day, and uh, but Will even said, "Oh, okay, we 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 might win this now." Yeah, it was a, it was a real moment. Yeah, it is. Um, there's there's there is that that small latency at the start of an AFL game or grand final in particular where. There's this tussling and tension, and, and rarely does it just burst open straight away, right? Even in, even last year's grand final, where the Giants obviously lost by an enormous margin, there was that tense period where it was unsure who was on top. And yep. I think yep. I think that's one of the great parts about the grand final. And, and and we were lucky within our game, at least from a from a spectator's point of view, that that tension lasted until five minutes ago in the last quarter. In in all oh, honesty. Yeah. So that's where you create one of those historically great games, and that's again much like the um, the prelim the week before. And I think in those moments, it's particularly for a spectator point of view, you're just waiting for your team to 
to show something. They say, all right, we're here to play, we're here to play and we're, we're going to perform. And, and, and I agree that there's a couple of moments in the first half in particular where, you know, we had players stand up in big moments to to really enforce the fact that we were here to play and, and we were going to be a competitor throughout the day and obviously ended up being victorious. It was, and is it true? Now I've told this story many times, and I'm I've just now panicking that it's not true. When you kicked that winning goal, uh, you didn't realise Toby McLean was on your back. Yeah, no, I, I honestly can't remember Toby. Like I, not for a while. But having said that, Danny, <laughs> you could ask me a lot of questions about that grandfather, and I can't remember half of it. I do remember one of the great parts is, um, so I've run off with Toby off on my back. I'm carrying on like a pork chop. And rightfully so, I might have. I thought it was a Norm Smith worthy pork chop. <laughs> and um, and I've sort of you know done my dash out to the flank, and I turn back towards the middle of the ground with Toby still on my back. And before I even do a one eighty spin, bloody Pico's grabbing me by the jumper and sort of shaking me back into reality. And he's like, "The game's not over yet." And I'm like, "I mean, at the time, I was like, Pico, come on, give us a give us a spell." <laughs> that was pretty good. <laughs> And then, um, and then, obviously, you know, we we got on with the job, and he ended up getting another goal in a couple of minutes later to really seal the deal. So, it is funny the little things that you remember from those days. But in all honesty, a lot of it is a blur because it's such an emotional, draining, physically, and, and and there's no there's no clear stop sign, right? So you go from the game into the aftermatch, into the on back on the ground, into the the you know the the function club function, then you go to a nightclub and. By the time you take a breath, it's Wednesday after the BNF, and you've abused a fan, and it's all um, <laughs> it's all de- it's all well and good. <laughs> it's got to so, be one of the nicest blurs of all time, though. Uh, so, Tom, um, you want to get back into your speaking thing? How can people book you if they want to see uh, you know Tom Boyd at an event, uh, whether it's you know via Zoom or? Uh, or Skype, or, or even, you know, when this is all over, uh, get, yeah. him, get him in the room as you. Who, how do we book you? Um, yeah, so there's a couple of ways. Um, so my Instagram is tomboyd17, I think. Uh, let me check that. Tomboyd17, yep. And you can contact me on there. I've got an email address that I get back to occasionally when the, uh, the inquiries are correct. My website is uh, www.millennialtranslator.com.au. Uh, that's where you can find sort of all the information about my speaking and stuff. And and as I mentioned earlier in the podcast, there's, there's been certainly some leads pop up in, in the virtual space and I'm really working hard to try and create a, a, a program or at least a product that is really, really effective and interactive because I think that's extraordinarily important at this point in time, particularly in the mental health space where we have some interaction rather than just being lectured to by a 24-year-old ex-footballer. So um, I love collaborating with people and um, I really think there is an enormous amount of value obviously in this space at the moment and will continue to do my best to um, create a positive space around it and, and continue to work at improving this area for everyone. Well, I think everyone should uh, uh, book you. Just book you for everything: birthdays, bar mitzvahs, uh, Christmas parties. Just uh, get Tom Boyd in the room to just uh, tell stories and and, oh, and and talk you through mental health, mate. Thank you so much for uh, for, for coming along. I should also plug that uh, uh, my Instagram is Danny uh, at Danny McGinley on Twitter or Danny McGinley official on Facebook. We have a Patreon for uh, they came to play. Uh, please uh, help us out so we can uh, uh, keep this podcast. 
going. Uh, also have a YouTube channel, uh, not a whole lot of other nonsense. Please uh, get involved, uh, everyone. Tom, thank you so much for joining us on They Came to Play. Thank you very much, Danny. Like and subscribe, everyone. Get around him. He's a good fellow and a very worthy cause. Yeah, go dogs! It's uh, refreshing yet uh, displeasing to the eye. Somebody has run out on the field. Some goofball in a hat and a red shirt. Now he takes off the shirt. It's a bold strategy, Cotton. Let's see if it pays off for him. In the dying seconds, unbelievable. They wouldn't say die. That's just shows that they didn't come to play. They really come to play here at the MCG tonight.